0: Amen. Amen, church. Good morning. Well, if you would, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll pick up this morning in our exposition through Paul's first letter to Timothy, beginning in chapter 3 today. We'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 7. This is the word of the living God. into a snare of the devil. And so, Father, one more time, we ask for Your help as we study this vital passage on overseers. Lord, we ask that You would work powerfully in our hearts. We need Your help, Holy Spirit. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, we come this morning to a vital uh, subject with respect to the apostolic vision for how the church of God is to be governed from the time that the apostles died from the apostolic age until the time of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 3 of Paul's first letter to Timothy, uh, we get uh, two watershed passages on the qualifications for the kind of men that the church is to appoint as leaders in it, namely overseers and deacons. And as far as we can tell in our study of the New Testament, these two offices of overseer and deacon are the only two divinely sanctioned offices that are to exist in the church of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, despite the gross error of the Roman papacy, and despite the fact that many churches today have sought to model their leadership structures after pragmatic Uh, Situations and modeled their leadership structures more after corporations than the scriptures. And despite the fact that many churches, I think very wrongly, uh, still believe that they are to have apostles overseeing them, or what they call apostles, uh, the New Testament data seems to be very, very clear that the apostles envisioned that after their deaths, the church would be governed and led. In each local assembly, each local body, each local church would be governed and led by ordained deacons and ordained elders. So consider Paul's greeting to the church at Philippi in Philippians 1. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, so all the saints, with the overseers and deacons. See, he makes a distinction. All the saints... And then he says, with the overseers and the deacons. And we will take this week and next week to study the characteristics of the men, the kind of men who would hold these offices and the kind of qualifications that they must have. So uh, verse 2, an overseer must be. And then if you look at verse 8, deacons likewise must be. And this morning, we are going to focus on the office of overseer. Overseer, which I will argue in a moment is the same, is interchangeable with the office of elder or what we commonly call today a pastor or the pastoral office. Here's what we need to get our heads around right in the beginning. Uh, These qualifications that the Lord Jesus Christ delivered to His church through His apostle are not optional. They are not optional. Now, I am not saying that there will not be varying degrees of maturity in men who hold these offices in various churches throughout the centuries. Uh, there will be. There will be varying degrees of giftedness among various overseers, and the church will be able to usually uh, very clearly identify more or less of the Spirit's operation in each man. Uh, that's just reality. Some men get ten talents. Some get five and some get one. Those things belong to the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit. And it's possible uh, that a man may be called to be an overseer in one assembly, but if he were to move and go to another church, he may not be called in that church. If that church had more uh, qualified and gifted men, uh, he may not be called to be an overseer in that church. And so the context of a particular church's situation is going to matter greatly here but here's what we can say with absolute confidence any man who serves in Christ's church as an overseer must have the accompanying character competency and spiritual giftedness that we see given in the New Testament it's a requirement And notice I said spiritual spiritual giftedness, not merely natural talent. Not charisma. Spiritual giftedness. And though a man's natural disposition and his temperament, and even the way he was brought up and raised and the things that he he is good at will often favor and, and work with the spiritual giftedness that God will give him, and they will often be very helpful Uh, to Him in the ministry, we must keep front and center in in our minds the fact that these men are given as gifts by Christ to the church. And the imperative text on this whole discussion is Ephesians 4, that great chapter about how God is going to build up his church in maturity and unity, he says in verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But then he goes on to say in verse eleven, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then he says the shepherds and teachers or the pastor-teachers, depending on how you translate it. and It's vital, brothers and sisters, that we press this reality into our consciences because the consequences are so significant. Uh, When it comes to the matter of the type of men being appointed to the pastoral office, we are not simply setting aside the best men in the church. Uh, We are not simply taking the most loyal men, or the men who have been uh, committed or members of the church the longest, and setting them aside and saying, "Hey, you—you you be our elders, you be our overseers." It's not how it works. We are, if done biblically, identifying the men that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to the church as gifts for its edification and upbuilding. Elders are not on the varsity team, and everybody else is on the JV team. Elders are sinners, fallen men in need of grace, in need of the gospel, saved like everyone else. And yet, in his sovereign wisdom, God has given these men to the church for its upbuilding, for its edification, and for the equipping of the saints. These men have been set apart to the office by the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, when Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And we could go on and on and on. And while the way that a man's gifts are used may seem very ordinary, and the way that the church assesses a man's gifts may seem very ordinary, we must never lose sight of the fact that of utmost importance is that the man himself and his church rightly discern whether God has set this brother apart to be a gift to the church and whether the Holy Spirit has endowed the man with the qualifications necessary to lead as an overseer. And the church of Christ needs to be able to see and recognize in every man his character, his competency, and his giftedness and again the degrees of character the degrees of competency and the degrees of giftedness will vary often greatly but any man who is ordained to the office of overseer whether he is staff or lay uh, whether he preaches every Sunday or he rarely preaches if ever at all must demonstrate that he possesses the qualifications laid out in this passage and in the rest of the New Testament. And brothers and sisters, I can think of no greater harm done to the church and and no greater way to harm the church than men, and in many places, women, have risen to the place of leadership in the church despite the fact that they have no call of God to do so. And it has done great harm in the church of God in this age. We've all come brothers and sisters from so many different backgrounds uh, that have done church government so differently and viewed leadership differently that I don't want to assume that we are all on the same page when it comes to the pastoral office. And I think it's likely that many of us have come from settings that have been less than biblical with regard to how leadership in the church has has been uh, handled. Uh, And we said at the beginning of this series that one of the primary reasons that we want to walk through First and 2 Timothy is to land our church back in the apostolic vision for how the church of Jesus Christ is to be governed. And so, I want to spend a few minutes laying some foundation for the office of overseer. And I'm going to get a little bit technical, so track with me. I think the place to start is to address just the confusion around the title. I mean, probably many of you, you're hearing me and you're saying, I just always grew up saying that we had a pastor. And I thought, I've never heard the word overseer, and I thought the elders were just maybe the older, wiser people in the church. We just had a pastor growing up. Uh, And you throw into the mix that the King James Version uses the word bishop, and this can get really confusing really quickly. And so I want to try to make it really simple. And, And here's how we can make it really simple. The word, or the title, overseer, elder, and pastor are the same office, just different titles. Overseer, elder, and pastor are different titles for the same office. Titus chapter 1, which is uh, the parallel uh, version of this chapter in, in Titus. Paul says this, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, but, but then, so he's saying appoint elders, but then he goes on to give a similar list, list of qualifications for the elders for the overseers in 1 Timothy 3. So Paul is using the word elders in Titus and the word overseers in 1 Timothy interchangeably. And he goes on to say in Titus, that overseers as God's stewards must be above reproach. So the title elder, presbyteros, I'm sure you can hear the word presbyter or presbytery, and the title overseer, episkopos, which is where we get our word episcopal or episcopalian, he uses these words interchangeably throughout the the New Testament. An elder and an overseer are the same office. They're the same person. And you say, well, I've always just used the title pastor. Probably most of us came from settings where uh, the church had one senior pastor that sort of operated as this kind of CEO over everything. And then there was a group of elders or a board of elders that just kind of met together and made decisions about different matters in the church. And they didn't really do the stuff that the pastors do but they had some sort of leadership position in the church. And I find this one to be strange. Some churches have men that they call pastors, but they're not ordained elders. Which is really, uh, I think, interesting, especially when you think about today, there are some making the argument that women can be pastors just as long as they're not ordained elders. And there, there are many making that argument today. And it's just unhelpful and it's confusing. And if you're new to our church, perhaps the way that we function on this issue is a little odd to you because any man who's been ordained as an overseer, we call that man pastor. And we see him as a pastor of the church. Whether he preaches in the pulpit, whether he is on staff or not, is really irrelevant. If the church has identified the man as a gift from Christ to the church and he possesses the qualifications of an overseer and the church looks at this man and sets him apart to be its pastor. He is to do the work of a pastor. And so, the word pastor or shepherd is not, believe it or not, frequently used as a title in the New Testament. However, pastoring and shepherding is an essential function of elders' and overseers, which are the frequently used titles. Uh, This is why we use the term pastor today, largely. And we see this clearly in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. Listen, Listen to how this reads. This is Peter, and he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he's talking to the elders. Presbyteros. He's talking to the ordained elders and listen to what he says. Shepherd, rule over, govern, care for, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So Peter's admonition to the elders is to shepherd the flock of God. And then he goes on to say, exercising oversight. Episcopeio, the verb form of the noun for the word that we translate, overseers. So you have all three words together. Elders overseeing, and they're to be shepherding the flock of God. So though he uses the title elders, Peter shows us that the apostolic function for elders is to pastor the church. To care for the people of God. To exercise oversight. This is what elders do. It's who they are. They are shepherds of the flock. And so this model that the pastors do the pastoring and the elders do something else is an unbiblical model. Elders are called to pastor the flock. Likewise, in Acts chapter 20, which is one of the most moving portions in all of Scripture, we have all three of these words used together again in the same context. And here we have the narrative of Paul speaking uh, to men of whom Luke calls in verse 17 the elders of the church. So these are the elders at the church in Ephesus. But listen to how Paul admonishes them in verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. But then what does he say? To care for, literally to shepherd, the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. So Paul is saying, elders in Ephesus, have oversight of the flock. Shepherd them. Care for them. Pastor them. God's obtained the church with His own blood. Care for her. So brothers and sisters, I know that there are all kinds of ways that churches do government, and I think we should largely understand this as a secondary issue. But when we do responsible exegesis of the New Testament, it just seems abundantly clear that the apostles had in mind a situation where local churches, each local church, would raise up its own qualified overseers who would act as pastors of that flock of God. Uh, Not from a large presbytery over many churches. Notice Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. What? Among you. The ones in your midst. Those are the ones that you are to shepherd. Those are the ones that you are to have concern about. And I don't think I'm being biased because I am Baptist. The New Testament just seems very clear on this issue. And So what I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning is to get us into this passage and put before us three essential characteristics that elders and prospective elders must have if they are going to rightly hold the office. So number one, elders must demonstrate exemplary moral character. If you flip over to chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says this to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but listen, but set the believers an example. Set them an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in impurity. And so the man who would serve Christ's church as an overseer, regardless of how gifted the man is in teaching, if he is going to rightly pastor the church of God, regardless of how much theological education he has, he must be exemplary with regard to his character. With regard to his behavior. And the prerequisite of this necessary moral character is his desire to deny himself for the sake of serving Christ through holding the office of overseer. Look at verse 1. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That word aspire means to stretch oneself out for. To long after. To have a desire to do the work. This man has a spirit-endowed longing Not for the title, not for the blessings that may come with the office, not for any monetary gain that may come with the office, but he has a desire for the work, for the work of the overseer. He longs to do the work required of those who hold the office. He desires a noble task. The work of overseers is a noble work. And it is work that will require constant self-denial. It requires a man to deny certain privileges with respect to his time and his money that other men may enjoy. It requires a man to open himself up to the needs of the flock. To be willing to receive a phone conversation in the middle of the night. Uh, the willingness to change his whole schedule around to meet the needs of the flock, uh, the willingness to meet for hours, the willingness to have hard conversations. He's opening himself up to that and he desires it. And now, to some degree, we should agree that all Christians should desire this kind of behavior. To some degree, this is just the Christian life. But it seems that the overseer has a spirit-endowed desire that is more than ordinary. It's greater than most Christians have. The yearning to serve the church exceeds that of most Christians. He longs for it. Now, it does not seem that the scriptures require a man to have this sort of all consuming, burning desire for the office. You know, sort of a give me the pastorate or I die type mentality. Now, I do think that for those who make their living off the gospel, for the church's full-time ministers, those men, they need to have a very strong desire for the work. It's not going to serve the church well if it's full-time ministers or every week going back and forth wondering, you know, I wonder if there's something better I should be doing. That's not loving or or blessing the church. And so the, the Scriptures just don't give us this hard and fast rule for how much of the desire a man must have. However, there must be some personal, even there we say subjective, inward yearning in Him for the work of the office. And in God's wisdom, uh, this necessary desire for the work removes almost all Christian men from consideration. Uh, Most Christian men who are very godly, who love their families, who love the church, will never consider being pastors. And we should be fine with that. That's God's design. Now, the man's desire itself is not sufficient to warrant the office. You know, I I see young people that'll say things like this No one's going to tell me that God's not called me to this. No one's going to, I know Jesus has called me to be a pastor. No one's going to tell me otherwise. The desire itself is not enough, it must be matched and met with the qualifications. And it's really amazing that the first and foremost qualifications for an overseer are moral. He must be above reproach. Not he must be an excellent communicator or he must have a PhD from one of the best seminaries or he must know how to grow a youth program. None of that. He must be what? He must be above reproach. This does not mean perfection. Elders are humans of like nature with everyone else. Elders sin and struggle with temptation and fallen emotions like everyone else. They will have to confess their sins like everyone else. To God and to others. They will have to make things right when they fall. So what does it mean to be above reproach? I think it means to be blameless with respect to disqualifying behavior to be blameless with respect to disqualifying behavior it means that while the man is not perfect he does not have these recurring moral flaws that are evident to everybody so that people are looking at him constantly saying i'm not really sure if this guy should be our pastor i'm i'm just really i'm not okay with his ongoing moral failures in these areas i'm not sure he's qualified it means that when he does make a wrong move, when he does sin against someone, he does whatever is necessary to make it right. He's always trying to live up here where where he's constantly being uh, called blameless. He's not being accused of wrongdoing. His lifestyle doesn't give occasion for legitimate, not illegitimate, for legitimate accusations that he's not qualified for the office. When he's in the wrong, he he goes to whatever length necessary to make it right. When someone has an offense against him, he goes to that person and tries to make it right. He tries to keep peace. He's above reproach. He's blameless. The way he carries himself in public and at home is above reproach. And Paul gives a list of qualifications that unpack what it means to be above reproach. He says a husband of one wife Or, as the footnote in the ESV says, a man of one woman. He's committed to his wife physically, emotionally, romantically. He's not off flirting with other women and having inappropriate relationships. He's not crossing boundaries with other women. He's sober minded. He isn't tossed to and fro by his emotions. He thinks clearly, he thinks objectively. He's not given over to psychological and emotional deviances that cloud his judgment so that he can't lead effectively in the church. He's self-controlled. He's able to tell himself no more food. No more wine. No more cell phone. No more work. He's self-controlled. He's able to control his own spirit so that when he's questioned or even when he's disrespected, he doesn't fly off the handle and get angry. He controls His temper. He controls His spirit. He doesn't lash out at people. Every component of His being is under the sober judgment of the man. And because these things are true, He's respectable. Uh, People don't regularly question Him. They trust Him. Uh, They see Him manifesting behaviors that are godly. They don't constantly see Him manifesting behaviors that violate these qualifications. Even His physical appearance and how He uh, uh, walks among the people all is respectable. He's hospitable. His home is open. Uh, he doesn't just come out of nowhere and preach on Sunday and then go back into hiding until next Sunday. He's with the people of God. He's drawn to those who are naturally timid. Those who are shy. He, he has the ability when He's in His office to be in deep thought, wrestling with a text, wrestling with the exegesis of a passage, but then someone comes and knocks on his door and has something totally uh, unrelated to talk about, and he's willing to change directions and listen and care and love that sheep and give them an open ear. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent but gentle. You know, so many of these qualifications have, have to do with the man's temperament. The various aspects of the work of an overseer are such that a man must have a gentle and meek temperament. He must be able to handle disagreements and even take criticisms without getting angry at everyone. Without flying off the handle and defending himself. Without lashing out in angry defense. He must be able to remain cool and calm when people in his own flock are clearly out of line. He must be willing to teach them with patience. This does not mean he's a pushover or just bows down to every whim of every person, but his overall disposition is that of gentleness and meekness and sobriety as opposed to violence. He's willing to correct and rebuke those who contradict sound teaching, but he's not quarrelsome. He's not looking for a fight. He's not looking for controversy. And yes, that includes theological controversy. And yes, that includes his social media accounts. He's not a lover of money. Money, or lack thereof, does not influence his faithfulness to Scripture. He doesn't get worried when one or two families threaten to leave the church over some issue, so he changes the message to keep them happy. Because he knows if they go, the money goes. He's not a lover of money. He's content to serve the Lord and do the work. And he's content with being able to provide for his own home. All of these character qualifications are necessary and they must be evident. These qualifications need to be demonstrated over a period of time in order for the church with a clear conscience to look at this man and say, yes, he is qualified. We want to set him apart for the office of overseer. He says in verse 6, He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The Scriptures do not give us a specific length of time that a person must be a Christian before becoming an elder. Uh, Every situation will be different. But what is clear is that these qualifications aren't evident overnight. There needs to be time to assess them. The man himself may not know that he possesses the character necessary to be an overseer. It may be that God has to bring him through some trials. It may be that his, uh, something difficult that he walks through shows him who he really is. He needs to be tested. He needs to be tempted. He needs to be wrongly accused, perhaps, in order to see what is really in his heart. Uh, Paul's concern seems to be uh, that bringing a man into the office too quickly uh, may result in this proud, arrogant spirit that says, look, look at me, I'm in my 20's and I'm already an elder. I don't need to hear anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this thing. Don't, don't tell me. And then what happens? He crashes and he falls and he may even begin to doubt the faith. This happens more often than we would like. Verse 7. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. His co-workers shouldn't be utterly shocked when they hear that he might be a pastor of a church. That guy? The guy that's late all the time? The guy that never gets a job done? The guy that's always gossiping in the lounge? I'm not a Christian, but that church is out of their mind for making that guy a pastor. I would, I would never want to submit to him. That that should not be the case. Uh, rather, his lost friends and co-workers and neighbors should say, yeah, yeah, he's helped me out. He, he's respectable. Uh, he's always working hard. He's always caring for people when they're down. Yeah, I, I could see that. He would be a great pastor. Respectable among outsiders. It's really sobering, brothers and sisters. And it's been very weighty for me this week to think through these things afresh. Uh, The fact that Paul puts the overwhelming majority of emphasis here, not on giftedness, not on ability, but on character. On character. And I plead with you, church. I plead with you. Pray for your pastors to be godly. Whether you're here or whether you're somewhere else, pray for your pastors weekly and I would say, daily, in your family devotions, pray for your pastors to be godly. That they would be above reproach. Now, we must move on because there are two more essential characteristics that we must see and I'll have to move much more quickly. Not only must an overseer exemplify moral character, but secondly, he must also be skilled in teaching the Word of God. He must be skilled in teaching the Word of God. In verse 2, it says that he must be able to teach. doesn't mean he just has a mouth and vocal cords, but he has an ability, a competency, an aptness to teach. And Paul builds this out more in the qualifications list in Titus 1. In verse 9, he says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, So while Paul does not give an airtight argument on how skilled the man must be in teaching, it seems that he must have a familiar grasp with all the Word of God He needs to know well the primary doctrines of the Scripture so that he can clearly and plainly teach them to others. So that they can understand and be built up in the faith. And not only that, but he must be able to discern when someone is contradicting the sound doctrine and to correct them. And if necessary, rebuke them. This is absolutely vital if the church is going to be healthy. It's vital. Uh, the teaching function is essential to the work of overseers. And no matter how gifted a man may be at an at administration, no matter how gifted uh, or how uh, godly a man must, uh, might be, if he is not endowed with this Spirit-given ability to teach the Word of God, he should not serve as the church's pastors Or pastor if he does not have a firm grasp of the Word of God in order to clearly articulate it and help people understand and to uh, uh, rebuke those who contradict it, he should not serve as an overseer. And so the ideal situation, guys, is that all men will demonstrate the moral character given in this passage. Uh, Many have pointed out that these qualifications elsewhere are given to all Christians. This is just an exemplary Christian except for one qualification. The ability to teach. The aptness to teach the Word of God. A biblical shepherding is shepherding with the Word of God. Biblical authority is authority exercised insofar as it flows out of the authority of Scripture. And so while a man can cultivate his ability to teach and grow in His ability to teach. Uh, the New Testament does speak of teaching as a spiritual gift given by the Holy Spirit. Romans twelve six through 7 says this, "...having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving." And then He says this, "...the one who teaches in His teaching." And he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And so again, while some elders will show greater giftedness in this area than others, it does seem that a pastor's ability to teach the Word of God is not simply an exercise of Christian manhood. It is a spiritual gift given to the man for the upbuilding of the church now this is very important i do not think that the scriptures teach that all elders must be able to preach the word of god well before they can be in the office uh, there seems to be a distinction made between teaching and preaching that is requ- or the, the preaching that some elders do and the teaching that is required by all elders listen again to romans 12:7 through 8 Uh, Paul says the one who teaches in his teaching, but then what he says is interesting. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. There's a difference between teaching and the kind of exhortive preaching that's happening on Sunday morning. 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation to teaching. Paul makes a distinction again. And then 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so these three texts make a distinction between the type of preaching that happens where one man gets in the pulpit and heralds the Word of God and the kind of teaching that all elders must be able to do. And so, some churches, uh, praise God, many churches have recovered uh, the biblical doctrine of the plurality of elders—that there is more than one pastor in a church—and many of them have recovered what we call the parity of elders, that all elders are on par with their authority. But some have gone far too—they've gone way too far with it—and they've said, "Look, we're going to divide up the preaching between all the elders, just just evenly divided up." And we're going to evenly divide up all the uh, public ministry between all the elders because we're all, we all have parity and we're a plurality, plurality of elders. And there just seems to be no need for that. Uh, you can go into to many healthy Reformed Baptist churches all over this country and find qualified overseers who are godly men who teach the Word of God effectively who never get in the pulpit to preach. There are many other settings for their teaching to occur. Sunday school settings, lecture settings, membership classes, biblical counseling, city groups, community groups. He will do all these things as a teacher of the Word of God. And lastly, not only must overseers possess a skill in teaching the Word of God, but they must also possess a competency to exercise biblical leadership. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so Paul reasons here from the lesser to the greater. Uh, There are a variety of challenges that will inevitably arise for any man who holds the pastoral office in any local congregation. And so the overseers must possess what Albert Martin calls a more than ordinary, so it's more than most Christian men, a more than ordinary measure of spiritual wisdom and discernment to lead the church, to lead the flock, to exercise govern, government and governance in the church. in a man's home in God's Providence is the sphere of life that most replicates the type of environment that will show a man if he has that competency to lead and to govern. And challenges will arise. It is this realm of domestic life with all, with all that it encompasses that a man must demonstrate competency to lead well. To rule well. Uh, This text certainly does not insinuate that a man must be married or have children before he can be a pastor. That would disqualify Jesus and Paul. Uh, But Paul understands that God's will for the vast majority of men is that they get married and have children. And in God's sovereignty, it will be this arena, the arena of the home with all its challenges and all its relational difficulties, and all the times that a man is challenged and his authority is challenged by his little ones, and the management of his home and his resources and his bills are seen and show the man to be competent to lead in the house of God. And so he says, if a man cannot manage his own home, if he can't rule over his wife and his few children, how can he manage the house of God? And this domestic realm will be the place where this competency will be most visibly demonstrated. Now, this is not to say that every man who manages his home well is called to be a pastor. All Christian men should manage their homes well. All Christian men should have their children submissive. Uh, But as we build this out from other passages, uh, we see that the nature of the pastoral work requires that a man have a more than ordinary ability to discern, to judge, despite the fact that 90% of people stand against him, he can see what God has revealed and stand on it. He can can see beyond a decade from now. Beyond uh, two decades from now. He sees what the Bible requires for our ongoing vision. He can discern situations in the church and make proper judgments without being emotional and subjective. Hebrews 13:17 says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls," or as the New King James Version says, "who rule over your souls, who rule over you as those who will have to give an account." 1 Thessalonians 5:12 says, "We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord." It's amazing that Paul is saying there are men that God has placed over you in the Lord. Respect them. God has put them among, over you. And so just as the pastoral office cannot be separated from its teaching function, the pastoral office cannot be separated from the function of exercising biblical govern, governance. And while pastors must be able to teach, and while the teaching function is a vital component to how pastors edify the saints and shepherd the flock, if God has not given the man a spirit-endowed ability to lead in the church and to rule in the church, the man should not serve as a pastor. And there are plenty of spaces for godly men who have an ability to teach the Word of God to use their gifts and to build up the body of Christ and to serve the body of Christ and men can be extremely fruitful in those situations. But if the church brings that man into the office without this ability to leave, lead, he's going to be utterly frustrated. And the church is going to be frustrated. And here's what I want to emphasize. This management goes beyond simply organizing the home well. right? It goes beyond paying the bills. It goes beyond having the kids in bed. All those things are important making sure there's food on the table. It certainly includes that. But it goes beyond the ordinary managerial aspects of leadership, and it gets into exercising a moral fortitude, or we might even say a spiritual rule over those under his care. He says keeping his children submissive with all dignity. If a man is going to rule as a pastor in the church, He must first show competency to lead in his own home by by keeping his children submissive to him, not with abusive means, not with manipulating them to do whatever he wants, but with dignified means. Through an appropriate biblical implementation of discipline, through training them and teaching them and exhorting them, through spending time with them, through winning their hearts with love. He keeps His children submissive to Him. They respect Him. They honor Him. It's clear that He's the head of that home. The parallel verse in Titus 1.6 says, His children are believers, or better translated, His children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, we need to give a qualifier here. Our parents or Our Pastors fail in parenting like every other parent fails in parenting. And pastor's kids are sinners like everyone else's kids are sinners. Uh, Pastors are not going to bat 1,000 here and we certainly uh, certainly should not expect their children to be perfect. Uh, But it's clear that a man's home proves not only to be the training ground for the man's future ministry, but the testing ground to see whether the man is able to lead in the church of God. I mean, guys, think about how much wisdom fathers need in parenting. So much wisdom is needed. A father needs to know how to respond appropriately to his children in various situations. Uh, you know, pardon the illustration here, uh, but there's a difference between nose picking and a child rearing back on his hind legs and screaming no at his father. There's a difference there, right? Amen. And a father needs to know how to handle these situations appropriately. And fathers, we, as fathers, we show incompetency as leaders when we come down at a level 10 on our child for leaving a mess at the table when he just went off and got carried away. But yet, half an hour later, when we tell the child to go pick up his room, and he looks at us and pouts and sulks and shows disapproval, and we don't say anything. Because after all, he mopes his way into the bedroom and picks up the toys. That's showing a failure to judge what God is most concerned about. And, and pity the church who has pastors who get all into the, the, the little issues of the church while they fail to see the actual threats and problems arising right in the midst of their flock. There must be wisdom to lead. There must be wisdom to exercise oversight. This bleeds into all sorts of things. Which missionaries to support? Do we buy a facility or do we rent? What sermons do we preach through? Where do we put our our money to most advance the Gospel? How do we handle this church discipline situation? All of these things require wisdom. And it may be that the pastors have to take some time to step back and think about an issue and discern an issue and pray about an issue. They may be silent for a time when the latest fad or the latest thing comes out that's rocking the church. They may not just blurt out everything they feel in the beginning, but they're wise. They judge accurately. And when they fail, they acknowledge that they failed. And they make it right. So as we close, brothers and sisters, and come to the table, there's something vital that we must remember. Human shepherds, as necessary as their function is in leading Christ's church, they are under shepherds. They are not the chief shepherd. They are under shepherds. They are under authority. Though they exercise rule and authority, they themselves are not the head of the church. It is not their church. It is Jesus' church. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the chief shepherd. And so whatever your experience has been with your pastors throughout your life, and I'm sure there's a wide range of experiences here, both good and bad, with regard to your relationships with your pastors. May we never forget that Christ is the good shepherd who laid His life down for the sheep. And He will lead them to eternal life. And He will not lose them. And He will not let the enemy pluck you from His hand. And He is the perfect pastor of this church and of every church. Amen? Amen. Well, if you're, going, if, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and you've been baptized, and uh, you're committed to a local church so that you could take the supper there, uh, we want to invite you to come and take the supper with us. Um, If you're not, if you're going to be refraining today, there are some prayers in the bulletin that you can pray through during this time. And so take a few moments to meditate on Jesus, uh, the Chief Shepherd, how He has pastored your soul through difficulty, through trial, how He leads you. If you need to confess sin to Him, take the time to do that now. And when you're ready, come up and grab the elements, and we'll take it together. Let me pray for us. Oh God, uh, we look at a passage like this and Lord, we pray um, that You would help us to think clearly, to think rightly. Lord, we pray that You would remove from our minds tradition and error and any wrong thinking on the topic of overseers. And we pray, Lord, that this church would always be governed and ruled by men that You have given to Your church as gifts. And we pray that they would be qualified to do so. And we pray above all, Lord, that we would put our hope and our trust in Jesus, the Shepherd, the Good Shepherd, and put every all of our weight onto Your death for us, Lord. We thank You for the eternal life that You've given to Your sheep. And we bless You and give You glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you.